Revelation chapter 12, let's begin in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled and consecrated and ready to study your word today, to learn from you, to be taught by you, by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would be prepared to receive everything that you want to speak to us about this morning. Lord, help us to make application of these verses, Lord. Help us to obey what you say. Help us to not just hear your word, but to be doers of your word. We want to be made more like Christ because of this passage this morning. We know, Lord, that's what you want more than we want it. So we're grateful, Lord, we're praying to a loving Father who wants what's best for his children. So we pray, Lord, that you would set this time aside for your holy use. We pray, Lord, that we would receive everything you want us to receive. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring glory to yourself through your work in us, by your word, through your spirit. And we pray all these things together in unity as one body. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We are in between 
the second and third set of major judgments in Revelation. You may remember I brought it up a few times. There are three major sets of judgments, three sets of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, bowl judgments. And so last week we finally saw the seventh trumpet blown. We were waiting for that one. Remember we were in a little interlude there between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And you ladies, you missed out. I mean, you didn't miss out because you went to the women's retreat. So I know that. I know you received fresh manna right, right from God. I know that. But you missed out what was going on here. And there was something that God was doing here. People endured this teaching that I do. And God gave them grace to survive it. Uh, but anyway, enough about my problems. You can get caught up on the website. You can download the, the, the chapter there, chapter 11, as we went through that. But what we saw last week is we saw John, the Apostle John, he was instructed to measure the temple. He had to measure the temple. And he left, he was told to leave out the court of the Gentiles because the Gentiles were going to trample the holy city, that is Jerusalem, for three and a half years. So we saw, we went back to the whole thing with Daniel's uh, 70th week, which is the last seven year. There's 70 sets of seven that, uh, that we went into that, that Daniel received from Gabriel and so forth. And that coincided with the Gentiles trampling the city of Jerusalem for three and a half years because we saw that the Antichrist breaks that covenant that he makes with Israel in the middle of the, three, the seven years at the three and a half year mark and so forth. And that in part what causes this, um, this trampling of the city of Jerusalem. But we, not only that, we saw the, the two witnesses revealed that God had his two witnesses there Likely Moses and Elijah. We weren't, we weren't told specifically, but uh, many people believe it was Moses and Elijah. They were, they were outfitted in sackcloth. That when many of the prophets were, were outfitted that way and, and they would mourn and they would prophesy and so forth. And that's what these two witnesses did for three and a half years as well. In addition to proclaiming judgment on this world and, and, and also I'm sure that they are going to articulate the gospel of course, God is trying to reach out to everybody during this time. We're told over and over again that they did not repent. They did not repent. They did not repent, which means God's calling them to repentance. And they keep hardening their heart and hardening their heart and so forth. And so we were also told that the Antichrist was not able to harm them, these two witnesses. And he wanted, he, he's going to want to. Sometimes I catch myself talking like as if this is in the past tense. This hasn't happened yet. This is in the future got to remind myself so in the future the antichrist is going to want to take out these two witnesses and he's not going to be able to do it and so they're also going to stop from raining for three and a half years there are going to be plagues there's going to be you know the the seas turning the waters turning to blood and so forth they'll be able to distribute plagues at will and so the whole world's going to hate them i mean really really hate them and they're not going to be able to do anything to them until their testimony is finished just like us. We, no one can do anything to us, and, and we're indestructible until our testimony, until our time on this earth is finished. And when it's finished, then God says, okay, now it's time for you to be promoted, and we go up to be with him and so forth. And so these witnesses, the same way, they had a testimony that needed to be completed and so forth. And so, but when that time is over, then they're allowed to be overcome. They're not allowed to be buried for three and a half days, and then they come back to life. And in the meantime, before that, they're exchanging gifts. 
They're celebrating Dead Prophets Day and they're exchanging gifts and so forth. And then all of a sudden they come back to life and they're filled with fear. And then they're, they ascend up into heaven for everyone to see. So that was a lot. We covered a lot there. Some of you are like, well, why couldn't you cover it that fast last week? Well, there's a lot more to it than just that, but that's like a summation. But now today we start a section that constitutes chapters 12 through 14, where we'll see God provide a little bit more detail related to his enemies, specifically this beast, as he's been called already once or twice, and we refer to him as the Antichrist, and he's also going to highlight what Satan's doing and so forth a little bit. And then in chapter 15, when we get there, we're going to see God prepare, prepare to pour out this last set of seven judgments, these seven bowl judgments. And in chapter 16, he lets it, them all go. No waiting in between the sixth and seventh one. No, you know, spacing them out with long periods of time in between. It's just like one verse after the next verse, you know, the fourth bowl judgment, the fifth. I mean, he's just like, boom, boom. it's kind of like when you go see fireworks. Uh, fireworks celebration, you know, and they, they're shooting off these fireworks. You know, and they're, they're, there's like, you know, and then all of a sudden at the end, what do they do? This let it all go. You know, it's, you know, and, and it's just, you're overwhelmed with all of it all at once because it's just coming so fast, one after another. That's what's going to happen with God's judgments. Those bowl judgments come almost like right on top one after another. And, and that's the worst of, of that time. So now in chapter 12 here as we begin, John's going to see two signs. We have to remember that God tells us something here. He tells us that they are signs. He doesn't say that these are actually real things in existence. He's saying that they're signs. And it's important for us to know because people go all over the place with these things because they don't pay attention to the word sign. They're signs, but they're, they're different than just two-dimensional images or a flat sign that someone would see. First of all, what is a sign? A sign points to something else. It's not supposed to have all the attention. It's actually pointing to something that's more important than itself, right? So John is seeing not just this flat picture He's seeing like a three-dimensional or more, who knows, in heaven, you know, there are more dimensions than three. But he's seeing some caricature or some, some image that has depth to it, and he's seeing these images act out and do things that represent something more important or something that's in reality that he wants us to know, wants John to know, and that's what we're going to see. We're going to see two of these signs here in this chapter. He begins in verse 1 by saying, Now a great sign. So it's not just a sign, it's a great sign. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. So John's seeing this in heaven now. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So John sees this great sign in heaven who is a woman. Now the question is, who is this woman? Who does she represent? Now the Catholic Church maintains that this is Mary here. And, and others say, like the, I think the Seventh-day Adventists say this is Mary, Mary Baker Eddy, you know, their founder. Seriously. I don't know if they've changed, but, you know, I know they used to hold to that. Uh, Christian science, I get those two confused sometimes. So it's one or the other. I forget which one is Mary Baker Eddy. I think it's Christian science. 
But anyway, so they, they believe that this is Mary, and there's at least two problems with that. First of all, verse 6 tells us she flees to the wilderness. Now, Mary, to my knowledge, never flee to the wilderness. Uh, she waited in the upper room and, and was there at, on the day of Pentecost, which is a problem for the teaching that says she ascended with Jesus. Sometimes I've pointed that out. Like, I thought she ascended with Jesus. Why is she in the upper room receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Uh-oh, that's a problem. Uh, and then verse 17 tells us she had other offspring. Now, we wouldn't have a problem with that because we believe that, but the Roman Catholics believe in perpetual vir- her perpetual virginity, and then she didn't have any other children after Christ. So there's, there's a problem with that. Another interpretation is of the woman that she is the church, but the problem with that interpretation is that the New Testament clearly defines us as a chaste virgin, not a pregnant woman. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul wrote and said this, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So we're his bride. He's preparing us. There's going to be a marriage that we'll see later on in the book of Revelation. So we're not this a pregnant woman. Uh, for sure, we're not giving birth to Christ. And also the second problem with this, the church being represented by this woman, um, as, is that it's Jesus Christ is the child, as I mentioned, and if that's the case, then the, the son would be coming, in a sense, from us spiritually instead of the other way around. But we know that we are spiritually born uh, from him, not him from us. And so it just doesn't, doesn't work. And then the last reason why that doesn't, doesn't work is we're told that there's going to be a marriage between us and the Lord. In Revelation 19, verse 7, we're told, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So it can't be the church. So who is this woman? It's a real image. He's seeing some real woman there in heaven, in this kind of 3D uh, caricature there. And I believe that this is describing Israel, that the nation of Israel is represented by this woman. Because Israel gave birth, in a sense, to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus came from the nation of Israel. And so that's why I believe Israel has always been at the center of human history. And that's why I believe Satan has always tried so hard to destroy Israel. It's come come against Israel since its inception. And even before that, with related to uh, the Messiah's lineage. Now, we're introduced to another sign in verse 3, and we'll come back to, the, to Israel in a moment. But another sign in verse 3, he says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems, diadems or crowns, seven crowns on his heads. Now, you may remember at the beginning of the book, when we looked at Revelation chapter 1, I mentioned sometimes God interprets the book for us. We were told that the seven stars in his right hand are the seven leaders of the seven churches. And we're told that the lampstands are the seven churches as well. Sometimes God just gives us the answer. Aren't you happy about that? He just lays it out for us. And, and we still miss it sometimes. But it, what's funny is, is that he describes exactly who uh, this fiery dragon is in verse 9. He tells us the dragon is Satan or the devil. That was easy. But yet people still mess this up. They still run and interpret this fiery dragon as something else. And he clearly just tells us in the, in the chapter that it's Satan. So 
That's how we are. We're, we're, we're uh, hopelessly um, unteachable, I guess you could say. Uh, those of us that are fallen, which is just about everybody in, in, in the world. So now Satan is described as having seven, ted, seven heads and ten horns, and each head had a diadem or a crown uh, on it. And this is speaking of his power. He has great power. And then this whole image is also pointing out kind of this picture of this last government, this last man-made government that's going to rule. These seven heads, seven is a number of completion or fulfillment, as we've said before. So it's talking about his perfect earthly power here. And in Daniel chapter 7, it describes this kind of uh, power. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, we're told this. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. So again, power. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the, all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up upon them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So the ten horns are ten kings who will rule the earth. And you can see that, or you, we will see that, or this world will see it, we won't, but we'll see that these ten kings rule from the European Union. The European Union is, it, we're told in, in uh, Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that Daniel interpreted. And when he interpreted that, he saw these different kingdoms. And the last kingdom that we saw actually rule was the, was the Roman Empire was represented by the, the, the legs of iron. And the last kingdom we haven't seen come forth yet. And its feet is of iron and clay there. So we know that this last world-ruling empire, man-made uh, ruling empire, will have its beginnings or its origins or its roots in the old Roman Empire. And we see that with the European Union. Now, right now, I think there's 27 members of the European Union, and eventually, what I believe will happen is, eventually, it'll grow to the point where they will, they will make 10 rulers over these different areas. So eventually, there'll be 10 rulers that will rule, and eventually, it will take up the whole world, and the Antichrist will rule um, that government. And so, this is kind of what's, what he's talking about here. Now, in verses 4 through 9, God is going to lay out a history of Satan and his attempt to thwart God's plan, even into the great tribulation. He starts in verse 4 and says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So here you have this, the fall. And you know, we, there, Jesus at one point said, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth and, and, and so forth. There was a time where Lucifer, this, this beautiful angel, had pride in his heart, wanted to be like God, and he was cast down. He deceived a third of the angels, and they were cast down. And so Isaiah chapter 14, if you want to really see a good description of that event, you can write in your margin here, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 17, where we're told this, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, 
I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side sides of the north. I will ascend. It's a lot of eyes there. <laughs> I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest parts of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? So here we're going to see Satan at some point, and we're going to go, Is this, is this it? Is this the guy that did all this? It reminds me of the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> you know, he's just so impressive. And then you pull back the curtain, you're like, really? <laughs> Are you sure this is this powerful Oz there? So that's a good picture. So it's describing that. Now, uh, when we see his, the history of Israel start, you start to see, even from the Garden of Eden there, you start to see the, the Satan attack. And Satan start because at one point he heard this prophecy that that uh, the one that the seed of the woman eventually would crush his head. So from that point on, he's trying to figure all of that out and try to get in the way of all of that. And if you look at Israel's history, you could see that so many times there were attacks on the Jews, specifically related to the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, that messianic line there. Because you see even, I mean, it, it's all over the place. I'll just mention a few of them. The male Hebrew children were, were being killed in Egypt and, and Moses was spared. Then you see the Assyrians attack the northern kingdom. You see the Babylonians attack the southern kingdom. In Esther, Haman trying to wipe out the whole nation. Then you go all the way to Herod. Herod's trying to kill all the, 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 the male children in Bethlehem there. And, and, and Jesus is, is spared because of uh, an angel coming to Joseph and having him move temporarily to Egypt and so forth. So you have the enemy trying to thwart this plan all the way through the history of Israel and, and those involved in the lineage of the Messiah. Even in Jesus' public ministry, at one point in Nazareth, his hometown, they tried to run him off a cliff, but they weren't able to. And you see the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the Sadducees and and, and others unite to come against him, to try to thwart that plan. And, of course, it was all falling into God's plan because God is sovereign. They were actually working in a way that would help fulfill God's plan. It's just like with, um, you know, in the last century, in the 20th century, and you have the, the Holocaust and Hitler trying to just wipe the Jews off, off the map. What happened was, because of all of that, they were allowed to have their own nation again. In 1948. So the very thing that Satan was trying to do, annihilate the Jews, because he knows that Jesus is coming back to the Jews to proclaim himself as the Messiah. So he's trying to mess all that up. And, and so in that process, God t- takes that and actually uses the very act of him trying to ruin everything to, to fulfill prophecy and to actually begin the whole, you know, kind of last of the last days time clock there. And it's a beautiful thing what how God works despite um, what, what Satan tries to do. Even, even in, since then, you have the 67 
war, you have the 1973 war, you have all these things. Today you have suicide bombers and you have Hamas firing rockets, you know, from Syria. And you have all these just trying to come against Israel, trying to come against Israel. Israel will not be left alone until that time where the Antichrist comes and has this brilliant idea, makes this peace contract. These other nations are involved. They think he's amazing and he helps finance that temple. They're going to be left alone for three and a half years. But then again, as we looked at last week, he's going to break that covenant. And that's when that last three and a half years occurs of the, of the great tribulation. Now look at verse five. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. This is taken right out of Psalm two. You can put Psalm two in your margin there. Because in Psalm 2, it describes the son there ruling with a rod of iron. Now, shepherds had rods, but they weren't out of iron. When's the last time you saw a shepherd going around with a, a rod that had... Well, when's the last time you saw a shepherd, period, okay? But when you ever see a shepherd, I've seen them in Israel, they don't have, they're not carrying around rod iron <laughs> rods. They're, they're, carrying, they're, they're not doing that. This is demonstrating power. This is demonstrating authority here. Now, we're also told that the son was, was, was caught up to God and his throne. That happened in Acts chapter 1, when he was ascended to heaven right in front of the disciples. What's interesting is that the church age is in between verses 5 and 6. Take, that, take a look at that. You have verse 5, and then verse 6 says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So here you have Jesus ascending in verse 5, the end of verse 5, the Son ascending. And then you have verse 6, which is talking about what happens at, after the Antichrist comes in to that temple that's going to be rebuilt, and he defiles it, proclaims himself to be God. He turns on the Jews and starts persecuting them now and tramples the holy city, Jerusalem, underfoot for 42 months, three and a half years, and they flee, and Jesus told them to flee. And many people believe that they're aware of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. And they, they see that he said, even though they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, they somehow remember that or know that, and they go into the wilderness and flee. So that's, that's going to happen. When the abomination that causes desolation occurs, he said, don't go even back, don't even go home to pick up your cloak or whatever just take off he said how horrible it'll be for nursing moms in that day pray that your flight won't be on the sabbath you know he's talking to jews there he's saying you got to get out of there that antichrist is going to just start going crazy and flee to the wilderness so that's that's going to happen and many believe that this city that they flee to or at least many of them go to is the city of petra in Jordan there. In fact, Scripture tells us that it will be former Moab, and that's the area of Jordan there, uh, where they will go. And I want to read you a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 16. Many believe that this is talking about them fleeing into Moab when the Antichrist defiles the temple and they flee, as Jesus said to in Matthew 24. It says, uh, Isaiah 16, verse 3, Take counsel, execute judgment, Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at hand. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. 
In mercy, the throne will be established, and one, that's a capital O, and one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. It's been reported that a thousand Jews a day go to Petra to visit it. And they've never seen that kind of interest ever since Israel came back to their land. They haven't seen that kind of interest. They just have a heightened interest in that area. It's very likely that that will be the area where, to which they flee there. And so, of course, this, the interest already happening in their hearts related to that area. Now the scene switches from earth to heaven in verse 7, where we're told the war, a war, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon uh, and his angels fought. Now some people think that wrongly that this is Jesus here because it says his angels and they say well Michael doesn't have angels he does if he's an archangel (laughs) and that's the only one in scripture that's referred to as an archangel and I'm sure there's others who knows but he's referred to as an archangel and in scripture he's really if you look at it his main ministry has been guarding and watching over Israel so that's interesting so, of course, he has angels because he's in authority over angels being an archangel. So it's not, it's not Jesus for sure. He fought with, they fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now, Satan is a fallen angel, Lucifer. So he's not God, and he has angels here. It just means he has authority over uh, these angels. And so these fallen angels are demons there. So they fought, but they did not prevail, verse 8 nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Look at that. Who deceives the whole world. Is the whole world deceived by Satan? The whole world is deceived by Satan. We see it right there in Scripture. doesn't matter how many degrees they have. doesn't matter how smart they think they are. They don't know Christ. They're deceived by Satan. The whole world is deceived by him. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Right now, currently, because I don't believe these verses here, 7 through 9, are talking about that first fall. I believe this is talking, he's been going chronologically through. And right now we know, and we see it from the book of Job, chapter 1, that Satan has access to heaven. And he goes before, and he, he, he's going to be talking about accusing the brethren, right? He's accusing Job. And he's, and he's maligning his character in front of God. I don't know why God allows that. You mean, why does God allow that? I don't know. It doesn't, we're not told why he allows it. But we're told that he, can, he has access to heaven. Now he goes from back and forth, as we're told in other parts of Scripture, that he goes to and fro across the whole earth. So he's, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this world. But yet he does have access to heaven there. And that's important for us to see that. So I, I don't, because if you look at verse, let me see here, verse 9, it says the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. He's already, the, 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 everything that happened in the garden has already happened now. This is after the garden. Called the devil who deceives, present tense, who deceives the whole world. The same one that's being cast out of heaven is the same one that currently deceives the whole world, was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then you can see that he's already been doing some accusing of people in the earth. Look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, 
Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused, past tense, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The accusing has already happened. This is not before the fall of man here. He's already talked about that. This is his access to heaven. And he's saying he's already done all this damage. He's a serpent of old. He's already accused people. He's currently deceiving. He's cast down from heaven. And they're worshiping. Salvation has come and strength and kingdom of God. The power of Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren has accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And that the accuser is a picture of a prosecuting attorney. That's what a prosecuting attorney does, right? He, he or she accuses someone and saying, you've done these crimes. But we have an advocate. We have the Lord Jesus, 1 John chapter 2. We have an advocate before the Father that, that, that is a, a defense attorney for us. And, and he's not, I know Satan is the father of lies, but I'm sure many of his accusations are true. It's like, you're right. I did that. I'm guilty. But see, all of those things have been put on Jesus already. He took the punishment that I deserved. That, that, that uh, trial has already, has already happened. And, and I've already been uh, deemed or regarded as innocent because someone else has already paid my fine. Someone else has already took my punishment. And so he's been cast down. No more access to heaven to accuse anybody of anything anymore amen are you looking forward to that day verse 11 and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death so satan has been defeated he's been defeated since the cross but he's actually been cast down to the to the earth and he's going to be put in the a, a pit for a thousand years by by an anonymous angel even say that it's Michael or Gabriel it could have been, but God doesn't even think it's important enough to say who's the angel that cast him into the pit. He just puts him in the pit for a thousand years, and then he's going to go into the lake of fire. So he says that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Remember I said the, the most common designation of the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation, I think it's 38 times, he's referred to as the lamb in the book of revelation because all of er everything that he does for us and and er all of his victory everything that he has accomplished for us is all based on that shed blood of the lamb that was shed for us and all these jews that were reading this they all are going to in their minds conjure up the imagery of the passover lamb and how god passed over uh, the angel of death passed over the jews because they'd applied the blood of that lamb to the doorpost on the sides the doorposts and over the top, which makes a, a cross. And they were, they were saved in that sense from that judgment. So for us, we know that that blood is, is proficient. It's enough to pay our way to heaven. It's enough to deal with these accusations. What's the relationship between the blood of the lamb and these accusations? Yes, they're true. Many of them are true. But someone's paid for that already. There's already been recompense. There's, always, there's all, already someone's paid the price for us, and we know that. Do you know that this morning? Do you, do you trust in that? Do you believe that? Or do you, are you standing on that today? Where it doesn't matter how much I've failed. Maybe you just completely blew it on the way to church today, fighting with your wife or your husband. 
screaming at the kids, you know, and you're totally failing, and you're realizing that you're on your way to church. It's a bad one. I've done it too. Trust me. You know, and, and, you, and you're like, man, I keep failing over and over and over. And, and how does God look at me? How does he see me? How does he deal with me? Why are we pointing out the DVD series about the grace of God? Why are we talking about Pastor Chuck's book, Why Grace Changes Everything? Because when you understand God's grace and that he deals with us based, based on who he is and what he's done and not what I do or, or don't do, it sets us free to grow and to catapult our faith into maturity. And he wants that for us. But it all goes back to his blood, that he paid that price, that it was sufficient for us. But not only that, the word of their testimony. That's why we like to have salvation testimony, or any testimony, up here to share. It's powerful. There was a before and there's an after for us that know the Lord. And if we can't, we can't even, if we've known, claimed to know the Lord for a long time, and we can't see any difference between who we used to be and who we claim to be now, and we're the same people that we used to be, you don't have a testimony. It has to be real. It has to be legitimate. It has to be something. There was a before. There was a change. It's impossible for God, the Holy Spirit, to come into a life and have that life be the same. It's impossible. So that's, it's a good searching thing. You know, we're told in Corinthians to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. Unless we fail the test if Christ isn't in us. Christ in us helps us know that we are, we've passed that test. So no matter how much we know that, we, that Satan is saying these accurate accusations, you can say, I, I know I'm a different person. I know I've been changed by that blood. I know there was a before, and I know there was an after, and I know I'm not the same person I used to be. And yes, I fail, and yes, I fall short, and yes, I blow it, and yes, I sin, and because the standard is perfection, it's still perfection, even after coming to know Christ. It's still perfection. You go one mile an hour over the speed limit, you've sinned. Oh, we don't want to talk about that. That's, those, are, those are small little things. Oh, when you had hatred in your heart when someone cut you off, you didn't even say anything. You're singing worship songs with your mouth. But in your heart, you're wishing that, th- that the earth would open up like we see here and that car would go right inside. That's hatred. You've sinned. Oh, but I didn't go out and get drunk and go and do all this, so somehow I'm better off than the per- No, the standard is perfection. You fall short of that standard of perfection one tiny bit, you have failed. We sin every day. We can't act like we don't sin every day. We sin every day because the standard is perfect every day. And we need to recognize that we are new creations in Christ. He's given us a new spirit within us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's changed us. No one can argue with that. Go and talk to an atheist or someone someone that's attacking our faith or, or a Satanist and go to him and say, yeah, I don't care about all that stuff that you're saying. I know that I've been saved. I'm not the same person. You can't argue with that. I've told people to their face. I've said, you can't tell me I'm not a changed person. And no one could have changed me but God. I know that. And no one can argue with that. Just like that man that was healed, that was, that was blind, and he'd get called in before the Pharisees, you know. This, this, this side is not any less righteous than you guys. <laughs> I just want you to know that. Just, just, just for the record. They're not in darkness. They're in light, okay? So... This, this man was taken before the Pharisees. See, they're evening it out now. Now these, there we go. 
So he's brought before the Pharisees and they're calling him on the carpet. He goes, you know what? I don't know about all that stuff, but I know that I was blind and now I see. It's pretty simple, right? That's how we are. I don't care what your arguments are. I was spiritually blind and now I see. And no one can argue with that. That keeps us where we need to be in our walk with him. Don't forget your testimony. Don't dwell too much on where you've been and all that garbage. But remember that you weren't the same. You're not the same person that you used to be. And that, that, he wants overcomers. He wants us to be overcoming in this life, not walking around as victims. That's not what he's called us to be. He's called us to be more than a conqueror in, in this life. And they did not love their lives to the death. They're willing to lay down their lives for Christ. Sometimes it's easier to think about live, uh, dying for him than it is for living for him. It can be true at times. It's harder to live, but he doesn't want us to love our lives. You know, when Paul was threatened and he goes, you know what? I don't, okay, God's telling me all that's going to happen. None of this moves me. None of it moves me. I'm going to finish my race that he's called me to finish because he knew about the, uh, the blood of the lamb. He knew the word of his testimony. He knew that he had been a, a different, he's a different person than he used to be. And so he says, I'm not going to love my life. To, so what? If God takes me, he takes me. And I get promoted, and I get to be with him. And he was torn between the needs of the churches and, and being with Christ. He said, I just don't, I'm not sure, I'm torn. Which one would be, would be better? Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. So the attention goes from heaven now back to earth. So, you know, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. It's like heaven's gain is the earth's loss because it's 1,260 days that the enemy is going to be completely down here all the time, cast out of having access to heaven, and he has great wrath. But again, an anonymous angel is going to put him in the pit for a 1,000 years. I can't wait to see that in here. Verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Listen what Moses, um, what God told Moses to say to the children of Israel. And Moses went up to God And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he's telling these Jews here, I'm going to provide everything that you need. Just like last week when we saw God talk about these two witnesses as olive trees and lampstands and all of that, I will give you unlimited power to do what I've called you to do. So he's saying, um, the woman that's persecuted and so forth, Israel, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to that area we talked about, to her place where she is nourished for a time and time. What is that? A time is a year. Times is two years. And, and or actually, yeah, times is two years. So a time... And two times, which is 
three years and half a time. So the same, it's just saying the same thing different ways. So for three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. So yes, the enemy is coming with great wrath. He knows his time is short. So he's just unleashing on Israel. That's what God said to John. Don't measure that court of the Gentiles. The holy city is going to be trampled on by the Gentiles for 42 months, the three and a half years. So he takes the Jews and he protects them supernaturally. He protects them. It's beautiful. Verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up just like you want people in traffic. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the, up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So now we're not told what this flood is, if it's a literal flood of water or an army. A lot of times armies are described as floods that come in and so forth. It, it doesn't really matter because we know that God takes care of it. He opens up the earth there and whatever that is, whether it's an army or water or something else, it's, it's taken care of. God is coming to Israel's defense. And that's, that's the most important part to see Uh, out of those verses verse 17 and the dragon was in enraged with the woman i bet and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of god and have the testimony of jesus christ in romans chapter 11 paul articulates that israel is like a vine and the gentiles are like branches that are grafted in and that are worked by the vine dresser to become part of the vine there so we have been grafted in to, in a spiritual sense, with the, the, um, with the nation of Israel in, in, in related to their faith in Ab- or having the faith of Abraham. We're told that if we have the faith of Abraham, that Abraham is our father. And so in that sense, in a spiritual sense, we are the offspring of Israel because Israel produced the Messiah uh, and the Messiah produced us, in a sense, a spiritual a birth that we have had and so forth. So because of that, we are the offspring. And that's why he says there, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. These aren't unbelieving Jews here. These aren't just Jews that are not with the other Jews in the wilderness and God somehow, you know, protects them and so forth or whatever. He's talking about believers here, the rest of her offspring. So the application for us. To think about the fact that God has uh, a reality that has been begun in us related to our spiritual identity, who we are. It's going to get worse and worse in this world. It's not going to get better and better. It's going to get worse. And God has called us to overcome, to be overcomers. All the way until our testimony is finished, whenever that is. That could be tomorrow. When our testimony is finished, God calls us home. He calls us to be overcomers. And, and when I say he hasn't called us to be victims, if you've been a legitimate victim, I'm not minimizing the pain of that, and God doesn't either. Okay, so he knows that there are victims in this world, and he cares about victims. But the point is, he's given us everything that, that we need to be overcomers in this world. Sometimes we limit ourselves by looking at our backgrounds. I was abused as a child, or I had bad parents, or I was... Whatever it is, we can make a big, long list. The, 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 it was all set up for failure for me. Everything, my whole environment was set up to where I, I was, it was like someone was planning for me to fail. 
And, and we look at that and say, well, I can't be as successful in the sense of being a disciple of Jesus Christ as other people, or I, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I have no way of getting out of being in bondage to this particular sin or whatever because I had such an early exposure and all this stuff. And God says, he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And he says he's given us all things that pertain. I repeat it all the time for a reason. I want us to memorize this. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. And there may be things that we struggle with more than other people, but they're struggling with things that maybe we don't. And we're not in a race against other people anyway. We're in a race against ourselves in that sense of walking with Christ. So we have to remember that the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all sin, all sin. Are there some sins that you're holding on to that you're not believing? You know, this teaching that we have to forgive ourselves is not in Scripture. There's no Scripture that says we need to forgive ourselves. But part of accepting His forgiveness is having the same opinion of our sin that He does. We're letting ourselves off the hook when we truly believe that He's truly forgiven us. So, you know, you may think that's kind of semantics, you know, but the truth is we have to believe what He says about Him forgiving all of our sins. That blood is sufficient. There's nothing that it doesn't cleanse. And also, he knows that we get strength by remembering that he's changed our lives from the inside out. And we're new creations. The helmet of salvation is part of our defense. And and it's so grieving to the Lord that leaders in the body of Christ have messed with that helmet on God's people. They have made their salvation based on their works. And one minute they have it, one minute they don't. And they're taking that helmet of salvation off of God's people when that's supposed to protect their mind in a way that helps them grow into maturity. So we have to have that solid foundation of God's grace. That's why I talk about those resources in our equipping library because I know how revolutionary they were in my life and in many people's lives related to understanding the grace of God. So we have victory. He's called us to overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and he doesn't want to have us love our lives so much that we wouldn't be willing to lay them down for him if God called us to, calls us to do that. So that's this big application, at least for my heart. Um, hopefully, we're all kind of on his same page. Amen?